if you think back maybe 40 or 50 years ago, if you attended a Sunday morning service at this church, or one of hundreds like it all across the country, you would have seen virtually every man uh, in a suit and tie, every woman wearing a dress or a skirt. I doubt that even on a hot July day in a building without air conditioning, that you would have seen a man in shorts and flip-flops or a woman in slacks. In this church, or in one like it, again, years ago, you probably would have noticed virtually everyone carrying a King James Bible under their arm. You would not be very likely to see a Revised Standard Version, a Living Bible, or an NIV. And you definitely wouldn't have heard one of those read from the pulpit. Back then, you would have heard hymns accompanied by piano and organ only, most likely. We never hear any praise and worship music, and especially no popular instruments like keyboards, guitars, or drums. And if you went to the houses of the members of this church, or one like it, 40 or 50 years ago, possibly. And you went to their house, you probably would not find cans of beer or bottles of wine in the fridge or any other alcohol anywhere in their kitchen cabinets. These are all different issues that throughout my lifetime have Christians have had significant disagreement over. And issues which... There is not a a simple resolution to be had by just appealing to a clear verse from the Bible that says, thou shalt or thou shalt not, on any of these particular issues. These issues have been controversial, and sometimes they bring strong division in churches and between Christians. But I, I think that today, and I venture this Cautiously, but I think that today there is generally more understanding and acceptance of different views on these issues than there used to be. That said, these issues that I mentioned can still bring conflict into an otherwise unified church. Why do you think that is? And by the way, these are just. A few issues, there are many, many other issues that I could have brought up that we could and may yet talk about, but I'm just trying to give you a sample to think about. Why do you think that these particular kinds of issues are so difficult to deal with, that they create these divisions within churches and people who are on opposite sides, sometimes parting ways and no longer doing church together? No longer even communicating sometimes. Would it surprise you if I said that it's because of sin? Specifically, the respectable sin of judgmentalism. The respectable sin of judgmentalism. I don't think that's even a word, but... My spell checker tells me it's not a word, but I fixed my spell checker anyways. 
these disputed issues, and as I just mentioned, we mentioned four of them, but there are lots of others. Disputed issues, they become divisive for the simple reason that we tend in our natural state as human beings to elevate our opinions and even our, our personal convictions to the level of biblical truth. And then we begin to use our own position on whatever the particular issue happens to be as the standard by which to judge other Christians. And this is the sin of judgmentalism. The good news this morning is we're not left to our own imagination to address this sin. Because Paul deals with this in Romans chapter 14. Paul wrote to the church in Rome, and in this 14th chapter, he deals with two particular issues that are causing conflict and division in the church. And what's interesting is that Paul didn't deal with this problem by siding with one of the two factions on either of these issues. The Apostle Paul, inspired writer of Scripture, church planter, the Apostle to the Gentiles, he could have written to the church at Rome and said, listen, on these two issues, here is the side that's right. You should do this. He didn't do that. He didn't say, uh, those of you who have a problem with this need to get over it and deal with this because this is the right side. Or, those of you who think that this is no big deal need to realize it's a big deal because this is the right side. He doesn't do that. Paul deals with this issue by rebuking the sin of judgmentalism. And I think it's a challenging passage of Scripture for us today. So let's look at Romans 14. We're going to read through verses 1 through 12, have a word of prayer, and then we want to walk walk through this passage and and really draw out some very important principles here that are unfortunately often overlooked. And even when we sometimes give verbal assent to them, we, we say that we agree with these principles. In practice, we have a very hard time doing these things. So let's look at Romans 14, verse 1. Paul says this, Receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to dispute over doubtful things. For one believes that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. Let not him who eats despise him who does not eat. And let not him who does not eat judge him who eats. For God has received him. Who are you? To judge another servant. To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day above another. Another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it to the Lord. And he who does not observe the day to the Lord he does not observe it. He who eats eats to the Lord, for he gives God thanks. And he who does not eat to the Lord, he does not eat and gives God thanks. For none of us lives to himself and no one dies to himself. 
For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and rose and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. But why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So that each of us shall give account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or cause to fall in our brother's way. I got carried away and I read verse 13. Sorry about that. Okay. That'll be the next message for a later time. All right? Let's have a word of prayer, though. And uh, let's ask for wisdom and, and God's help as we examine His Word. Heavenly Father, thank You again that You have not left us to just try to figure these things out on our own, but You have given us very clear and direct teaching in Your Word. I fear that the challenge we face this morning is not a challenge of understanding the Scriptures because, because they're pretty clear here. I fear that our challenge is that we would let our own personal opinions about issues control and dominate where we come down and how we respond. Lord, I pray that you would help me as I speak to, 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 to magnify Christ. He is Lord. And I pray that you'd help each one of us to humbly submit to Christ's Lordship and not demand the authority and the power uh, for ourselves. Lord, I pray that you'd help each of us here today to be committed to serving Christ and to be obeying Scripture, to, to applying it in this area of the sin of judgmentalism. Lord, we want to please you and we want to honor you today. And we ask that you would be gracious to us as we examine your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the issues that Paul was dealing with here were twofold as we as we read through the passage. The first was what kind of food was acceptable for Christians to eat. The second issue that Paul was dealing with is uh, what, what days of the week, if any, believers should consider sacred. Now, these are not necessarily major issues today, although I think maybe if you think about them for a minute, you can see there are still some people who have some uh, hang-ups on these issues, and they are still issues in some churches and in some circles. But I think here we don't really wrestle with these two issues that much today. But again, the point here, what we want to do is we want to learn how Paul deals with these issues because the principles that he applies are going to then help us as we examine issues that are far more contentious today. And so that's what we want to do. Now, on each of these issues, the two issues that Paul talks about in Romans 14, there were two factions, and he calls these factions the weak and the strong. Please understand, these terms are, are terms Paul is using on purpose because they are descriptive terms, but they are not meant to be a commendation or an insult. When, call, when Paul calls someone weak in the faith, he's not saying they're not a good Christian. When he says they're weak in the faith, he's not saying that there's some problem with them that needs to be overcome. He's simply using a descriptive term here. 
And when he speaks of those who are strong in the faith, he's not saying they're better than the weak. He's not doing that. What he's saying here is, the weak are those that believe there is some restriction on this area that applies to all Christians. They do not feel that there is freedom for them in this particular issue. What kind of food to eat? Or what, uh, how to honor the days of the week or not? They don't believe that it's an area that Christians have liberty to do as they please. Right? That's what he means when he, call, when he talks about the weak here. That in their minds, meat was off limits. Now he doesn't explain why here. Okay, and that's something that is important. We're not going to get into the weeds of it. Actually, the, the passage that Edward read in 1 Corinthians 10 does deal more with why there was an issue over meat in the church at Corinth. That, Paul doesn't talk about that here. Maybe because it was a different issue, or maybe because that's not the point. But regardless, um, the why isn't important. What was important is that some of the Christians thought meat was off limits for Christians. We can't eat meat. And some believed the weak believed that there were some days, maybe the Sabbath day, right? thinking about this, the fact that the Christians at this point are still, uh, there's still a lot of Jewish Christians who are saved out of Judaism, and so they still have this, this uh, desire and this, this reverence for the Sabbath. Um, so it's possible that's the day that's at issue here. And some of these Christians believe that even as Christians, that there was a particular day or days that needed to be revered and kept holy in some way. That's the weak. So Paul's not saying that they're bad or wrong or less worthy or, or anything like that. This is not, so don't take weak here as being demeaning term. It's not. It's simply descriptive because they're weak in the sense they do not feel freedom or liberty in these areas. The strong have a stronger view in those areas that they have liberty, they have freedom. The strong, they don't see any problem with eating meat. And they don't see any reason why any day of the week should be uh, treated differently. So you treat Saturday just like you treat every other day of the week. Just a day of the week. These are the different, uh, the different positions here. Now, again, and I would say this, I think that this is probably true, that everyone here today would fall into the strong category, for the most part, on these issues. And the reason I say that is I think all of us would, would say it's strange for someone to say that eating meat is a spiritual issue. I think, it, I think all of us would have a little bit of a, we might think it a little bit strange if someone said, you know, um, you know I think that, that honoring the Sabbath day, the, the Saturday, is, is a spiritual issue. And if we don't do that, there's some, there's some spiritual concern here. I think we all kind of feel like that, that seems to be, that doesn't really seem to be an issue that we deal with. I think all of us would fall on the side of the strong on these particular issues. Tom Schreiner, uh, in his commentary on Romans, describes the strong this way, and I think this is helpful. He says, those who are more liberal, again, not politically here, but talking about their practices, are inclined to mock and ridicule those who feel confined. The person free from constraints finds it difficult to understand the reasons why others bridle themselves. Since it appears irrational to the strong, they are tempted to poke fun at those who are more conservative. Paul is dealing here with the strong 
and the weak. Those who have freedom feel like there's no restriction on them as Christians in these areas. And those who, on the other hand, feel as if there is something that they are limited here and they just don't have the freedom to to, to do as they please in these areas. Now, think about some of these issues. People, I think this is true. I think that the the Shriner is right, that that the strong, people on the strong side tend to... um, look down upon or even make fun of sometimes those who are in the other position, the weak side. And I think this is, this is true and it's observable somewhat today. People who dress casually at church or even churches where casual dress is encouraged uh, sometimes make fun of Christians who dress up to go to church. They, they sometimes will poke fun at Christians who, you know, it just seems kind of silly that they would have to get dressed up and wear a suit and tie to church. That's old stuff. That's old fashioned. It's easy to make fun of that. Or Christians who use modern Bible versions will sometimes mock the outdated language of the King James Version and those who use it. Churches that use modern praise songs led by a worship team with guitars and a trap set will sometimes complain about how dull churches are that that just sing hymns and just have a, a simple accompaniment. Believers who drink alcohol in moderation will sometimes chastise abstainers. They'll say, you're not enjoying all of God's good gifts. These are things God has given us to enjoy, and you should enjoy them. These are the tendencies of those Christians that Paul calls strong in the faith. And by the way, Paul has very clear words for those who are strong. If you are strong in the faith, Accept the weak. If you are strong in the faith, accept the weak. And what does that mean? Well, Schreiner goes on to explain what that, what that word accept really means. He says this, accepting the weak involves respecting them and holding them in honor, even if there are disagreements over what is permissible. And so if you are strong in the faith, you have freedom in some disputed area. You, you look at that issue and you go, you know what, I don't see any reason why I can't do this or why there's some restriction here. I don't see any problem with that. Fine. But you need to honor those who don't have that same freedom. Even though it seems irrational. So get that here. It's not going to make sense to you. It's not going to seem logical and rational to you. Accept the weak. Receive them. That's what Paul says in the very first word of chapter 14. Receive one who is weak in the faith. Receive him. Accept him. Show them honor and respect. The concern, by the way, for those who are strong in the faith, the concern isn't so much the sin of judgmentalism. The concern that Paul seems to be pointing out here is that they would sin by dishonoring or showing contempt for their brother or sister in Christ. And this is a sin. If you have contempt, disdain for another brother or sister in Christ because they restrict themselves in some area and you think that's silly, then you are sinning because that is a wrong attitude. You are, you are not honoring and respecting and showing uh, consideration for your brother. You are, you're, 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 being, you're showing contempt for them. That's sin. You need to repent of that and you need to, 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 to deal with that rightly. Receive your brothers and sisters with honor and respect. That's what Paul says. 
I would also say this. There's a practical aspect of this too. Because those, those Christians that you know that feel that there's some restriction that they can't do, but you don't see any problem with. Those Christians are far more likely to see things from your perspective and change if they are accepted and received with respect. William Hendrickson writes this, and I think he's wise to say it. He says, if you wish to cure a person of his error, and that's how he's speaking here of this, first of all, make him feel accepted. If his error is not basic, and what he means by that is fundamental or foundational to the faith, if it's a disputed issue here, and then he, he, maybe he is wrong about it, but, but Hendrickson says, if that's where his error is, he may see it and with the help of God, correct it before you even mention it. What's your job? What's your goal? If you're the strong, accept him. Receive him. Respect him. That's what Paul says. That's the attitude that we ought to have as the strong. If you're strong in any area, you ought to have respect for those who aren't. I had a conversation with my dad about this a lot. Um, Because, you know, from his position, he's in a lot of different churches. And he also has the opportunity to see some of the older, uh, you know, more senior pastors and some of the younger, uh, you know, guys that are kind of coming in and, and, and some of the different attitudes and the different ways of doing things. And he and I have talked a lot about it. And about, you know, the importance and, and about the importance of, of both sides showing the respect for the other. And not showing disdain when, 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 when we want to have, you know, we have differences of opinion about some of these things. The importance of the strong, those who feel freedom in these areas of showing respect for the weak. And I think that's a real issue. I think that's a real problem. A lot of times people in churches... We get this idea that I have freedom. I've come to understand this issue so that I have freedom here in an area. And my brother or sister doesn't have that same freedom. They, they, they just they don't believe that the same way I do or they, they don't see the same thing I do on that issue. And if we're not careful, we can look at them with contempt. Well, if they were as enlightened as me, they would come along to this. No, that's a wrong kind of thinking. Paul says, receive them. In other words, show respect and honor to them. They are living by their convictions, and you should, you should encourage that. You should respect that. Okay. So that's really important. That's actually not even the point of the message, but that's one thing Paul says here that's really important. Dealing with the strong. If you're strong, you need to, to, to accept the weak. Okay. Show them respect. But, but here's the thing. The real issue that I want to look at today is on the other side. Okay, Because the weak are especially vulnerable to the sin of judgmentalism. Notice what Paul says there in verse 3. Right? He says, let not him who does not eat. This is in the middle of the verse. Let not him who does not eat. That's, that's the weak person. He doesn't eat meat because he doesn't feel that he has freedom there to eat meat for whatever reason. Paul says, let not that person, the weak, judge him who eats. Why? For God has received him. So here's Paul's instruction to those who are weak in the faith, right? If you are weak in the faith, again, not an insult, own it, okay? As I've been, as I've been studying this over the last two weeks, I've been working on this message for two weeks as I've been studying it, I've had to kind of go, okay, I, I can see a couple of issues where I'm on the weak side, where I see a restriction that other people don't see, where I see a, a restriction and I, I just don't believe that I can do that, but other people do. 
And I have to own the fact that that makes me weak here. It's not an insult. It's just what Paul says. So I'm going to own the term. All right? So own the term. If you're weak, do not judge the strong. Do not judge the strong. That's what Paul says in no uncertain terms. He says it explicitly. The one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats. It's a command. And in the rest of this passage, Paul is going to build his argument against sinful judgment. And he's going to do it on, really on the basis of two theological truths. There's a, God, there's a lot of theology here in this that Paul's going to point out. And then there's the implications of those truths, the significance of those truths. Now, the problem with the person who is more conservative, that's the weak in the faith person. The problem is, when he sees his stronger brother exercising his liberty in some disputed area, he tends to consider his brother's behavior scandalous and draw conclusions about his motives and his spirituality based on those actions. I mean, you... You might think to yourself, you probably wouldn't say it out loud, but you might think to yourself, well, he only dresses that way because he doesn't really respect God or anyone else. That's why he dresses that way when he comes to church. He has no respect. Or you might say, well, they only use that Bible version because it's popular. They don't really care about good doctrine. If they cared about good doctrine, they'd use this one. Amen? I've actually, unfortunately, I've heard people in churches, I've heard pastors and preachers do kind of stuff like that. Sorry, but they're, they're guilty of the sin of judgmentalism. They're guilty of what Paul is saying not to do here. They're sinning. You say, pastors can sin when they preach? Yeah. Yeah, I've, I've seen it. Hopefully I haven't done it. I don't know. I have to think back about that. I have to be careful. They like that music because it's trendy, you know. The fact that it's shallow just shows that their theology is shallow too. She only drinks because she wants to indulge herself. She doesn't care about her testimony or how it might affect others, and she certainly isn't interested in living in self-control. If she was, she wouldn't drink. These are the kind of judgments that we make when we're weak on these issues. We make these, issues, we make these judgments when we see someone who's strong exercising their liberty. Living in the freedom that they have in God. We judge them for it. These are the kind of things that we're doing. But the problem is what these statements reveal is it reveals a heart that says, I can tell what's going on in my brother or sister's heart just by looking at his actions. Right? When he does something that I don't approve of, it means he's not really serious about spiritual things. Because if he was serious, he would be in the position I'm in. Right? This is the kind of judgment that Paul refuses. This is the sin of judgmentalism. The problem, the problem with the weak passing judgment on the strong is that when you do that, you are acting as though you get to determine if the strong are really saved on the day of judgment. That's what Paul says here, by the way. That's what he says there in verse 4. Who are you to judge another's servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. Paul is saying here 
that you are, you are basically examining whether or not this person stands, whether they are even saved or not, when you judge their spirituality. And by the way, Paul asks a very pointed question there at the beginning of verse 4. Who do you think you are? That's my paraphrase. Who do you think you are to pass judgment on someone else's servant? It's not up to you to decide whether someone else belongs to God or not. Notice how at the end of verse 3, he says, God has already received him. Right? God has already received him. God has already received the strong brother or sister. And in in other words, if the Lord has already accepted him, what right do you have to question whether or not he will ultimately be accepted? If God has already received him, God has already accepted him. He's a Christian brother. It's a done deal. And what's more, he's a servant of God and he doesn't belong to you. You know, think about this. Like, let's put it in these terms. If you're a manager of a restaurant and you want to write up a waitress from another diner, what right do you have to do that? She's not your employee. She doesn't work for you. You don't get to write her up. She answers to her manager, her boss. Her manager gets to evaluate her work. You don't get to do that. It's not any of your business, really, quite frankly, whether she passes or fails at her job. Not your business. You're not her boss. You see how that works? That's what Paul is saying here. But as I said, there's a theological foundation here. He says, to his own master, he stands or falls. Indeed, he says, he will be made to stand. For God is able to make him stand. This is really important. This is a a very important principle that we've got to understand. Paul says it this way. You stand by God's grace, not by your own effort. I think what Paul is talking about here is really talking about salvation. He's talking about whether the strong is really saved or not. Because that's what the weak is questioning when he's questioning the spirituality of this person because he's saying, well, I saw him take a drink. We were at a restaurant and I looked over and I saw he had a glass of wine at the table. He's carrying an NIV to church. I laugh. I'm sorry I laugh because I've seen it. I've heard it. Paul says, you misunderstand. You misunderstand because you're judging them on the basis of their actions, which you suppose are scandalous, but none of us are saved by our actions. You know that, right? You you realize that, right? Not a single person in the world will ever be saved because of what he does or doesn't do. If that was a criteria, then we would all be out. Not a single one of us makes it in then. Because none of us are able to live up to the standard. No, no, see, that's not the issue here. Your brother 
will not stand. And when Paul says stand, he's saying be approved by God. He will not stand because he comes to the right conclusion on every disputed matter. You know that, right? Being on the right side of all these issues is not the way you get into heaven. It's not the way you stand before God and God says, Oh, I approve of you. You did a great job. You got all the answers right. That's not it. How will he stand? The same way you'll stand. By the grace of God. Because God makes him stand, just like God will make you stand on that day of judgment. God will make you stand. I love the way Paul says that. It's like God will lift you up and say, no, no, I'm not going to let you sit. I'm not going to let you fall down. I'm holding you up. I'm making you stand. I have to do that with the kids every once in a while when they're throwing a fit. You know, they'll flop down on the ground. I pick them up. No, stand. Well, I kind of picture this that way. We're standing, we're in the presence of God and we're flopping down. And he says, no, no, I'm going to stand you up and I'm holding you up. You will not fall. Why? Because you have strong legs? No, because God is holding you. That's what Paul says. It's grace. It's not works. When we pass judgment, what we're doing here is we're actually missing a key gospel truth that none of us is saved by doing the right things. None of us stands before God because we did all the right things or didn't do the things we weren't supposed to do. We made sure to, to, to get the list correct and we made sure we had everything all right. And we, just, we dressed the right way, we acted the right way, we talked the right way, we did it. None of us is going to stand before God that way. If you think you are, then you're not trusting in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And ultimately, that's a damning doctrine. Somebody follows this kind of thinking, that that will damn them to hell because it will it will miss the grace of God completely. Paul is 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 working here on the assumption or or with the understanding that grace is that power which causes sinners to stand before God as faithful servants rewarded for righteousness that is not their own, but as a gift from God Himself. So God gives us the gift of righteousness, makes us faithful servants, and then rewards us for being faithful servants when He's the one who caused us to do that in the first place. Yes, that's how it works. From beginning to end, it's grace. It's all a gift of God. And Paul says, you've got to get that. Because when you're judging your brother, you're missing that. You don't get to pass judgment on your Christian brother because God's grace saves him. Not his obedience or his sincere effort as you measure it. And again, this is true just as much for you as it is for the brother that you're judging. You are just as dependent on the grace of God. And so that, that, that's the theology here. Paul is saying, listen, there's an understanding of the gospel, an understanding of grace and what it means to be a Christian and be saved by grace alone. That is the foundation. We've got to get that right. If we get that right, then that will help our thinking so we will understand this issue better. So he then draws a conclusion from that. See, if, if, if standing before God is all about grace, 
God making us stand. Then here's another point. Here's the, the implication. Honor God and don't worry about pleasing others. Right? If God is the one who makes you stand, if it's all about God making you stand before him on the day of judgment, then guess what? Nobody else enters into it. So honor God and don't worry about pleasing others. Notice how he concludes there, verse 5. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. This is a matter between you and God. Here he's talking in verse 5 about one of these disputed areas, whether or not one day is more sacred than another. And he says, listen, it doesn't matter what answer you ultimately come to. What matters is you be fully convinced in your own mind. This is a matter between you and God. He and you are the only ones who can read your mind. And husbands and wives are going, yeah, that's true. We don't read each other's minds very well. I mean, we act like we do a lot when we judge others in church, but we don't really. God's the one who knows what you're thinking. You know what you're thinking. That's what Paul says. This is between you and God. It really doesn't matter what anybody else thinks about the issue. What matters is what you believe to be right or wrong. Therefore, it's up to you to make up your own mind on these disputable issues. But... So, again, that's reason not to judge. On the other hand, I would just say this. You also can't rely on someone else to make up your mind for you on this. You can't just do what someone else says is acceptable here. Because Paul says you need to be fully convinced, fully persuaded in your own mind. Some Christians err on the side of being judgmental about this, worrying about what everybody else thinks and examining all that. Others are lazy. They just kind of go, well... Then I want to think about it. I'm going to let somebody else do my thinking for me on this issue and I'll just go with them. Both of those are wrong. Paul says, no, no, you need to be fully persuaded in your own mind. This is your decision. You better, you better study this out. You better read on it. You better meditate on scripture. You better pray. And then you better decide what's right. And then you better live that way. But guess who doesn't enter into that equation at all? All these other people around you. They don't answer on this issue for you. You answer for you. That's what Paul is saying. Be fully persuaded in your own mind. Wrestle with the issues. That's a good thing. We should do that. One of the things that really um, concerns me is when I see Christians uh, uh, making decisions that they are clearly not wrestling with what Scripture actually says. These issues are difficult issues, but the Bible is not silent. We can read it, we can apply it, and we should... Even if we don't all come down in the same spot, we should read and wrestle with what it says. Paul says you need to be fully convinced. You need to stand firmly on your, on your convictions and keep it between you and God. Now, the direction of concern here in verses 6 through 8. Look at verse 6. He who observes the day, observes it to the Lord. Okay, keep that in mind. To the Lord. Look at the next phrase. And he who does not observe the day, to the Lord, he does not observe it. He who eats, eats to the Lord, for he gives God thanks. And he who does not eat, to the Lord, he does not eat and give God thanks. For none of us lives to himself and no one dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. Whose opinion matters here? The Lord's. That's all that matters. 
See, if he saves you completely by his grace, then guess what? All you need to worry about is what God thinks of you. You don't need to worry about what other people think of you. So you come to a conviction on these points, you study them, you wrestle with them, you come to full, be fully persuaded in your mind, and then you worry about honoring God, and that's it. That's what Paul's saying here. If you observe the day, you set it aside to be special for worship and praise, then great, observe it to the Lord. If you don't, if you treat the day like every other day, great. You still do that to honor the Lord. If you eat meat, guess what? Give God thanks for it and then eat it. If you just eat vegetables, give God thanks for the vegetables and just eat them. It doesn't matter which side you come on, Paul says. Give God thanks, do it. Honor God and do it. Just honor the Lord on whichever side you end up on. What someone else thinks about your decision is not relevant. What is relevant is are you sincere before the Lord in your obedience to Him, in your understanding of that issue? Now, here's a question for you to think about. Can you tell if another person is really fully sincere, fully convinced in their own mind and honoring the Lord on that issue? Guess what? No. That's the answer. No. You can see their actions. But unless they tell you their heart motives, you can't know. You have to... Hold on, i got to gear up for this. You have to trust them and trust God. Can you really trust... Oh my. Can you really trust your, your Christian brothers and sisters to make wise decisions when it comes to disputed issues? Well, Paul assumes that we can. Paul, in fact, tells us we must do that. Paul says this is what Christian life is really all about. Whether we live or whether we die, we belong to the Lord. And we seek to honor Him. That's what Edward read, 1 Corinthians 10.31. Whether you eat or drink. And again, also in the context of some people who are saying we should eat it, and some people saying we shouldn't eat it. Paul says whether you eat, by implication, or not. Whether you drink or not. Or whatever you do, Paul says, do it to the glory of God. That should be your focus. What does God think? How can I bring God glory? One writer put it this way. Paul can tolerate diverse practices which do not violate any biblical or moral norm as long as they are motivated by the glory of God. It's okay. This is the thing that's so hard. It really is okay for us to have different practices on these issues. As long as our concern in our heart is I want to glorify God by what I do or don't do. By what I drink or don't drink. By what I eat or don't drink or don't eat. By the days I celebrate or the days I don't celebrate. I want to honor the Lord. That should be the heart motivation. That's where our focus needs to be. And I would simply say if, if, if Paul and Scripture can tolerate those differences, then we had better learn to tolerate those differences too. Now, Paul states a second theological truth in verse 9, and then he spells out its implications afterwards. Notice what he says in verse 9. For to this end, Christ died and rose again. I'm sorry, died and rose and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. What is the theological truth? The first one was, you're saved by grace. Second theological truth is this. Christ died and rose again to claim authority over you. Christ died and rose again so that he could claim authority over you. Paul describes Jesus Christ here as Lord of both the dead and the living. 
That means that he rightly deserves honor and glory from us in our life and even in our death. And he earned this. How did he earn it? By going to the cross. By dying for you. And rising again for you. I think it's interesting. Paul doesn't say that Christ lived and died, but that he died and lived. Because Paul's focus here is on the cross and the resurrection. He's saying by Christ's death and his resurrection, he purchased the authority to rule over you. Calvin says it this way, uh, by undergoing death for our salvation, he has acquired authority over us, which cannot be destroyed by death. And by rising again, he has received our whole life as his peculiar property. Jesus Christ has purchased you. He has purchased the authority to rule over you. And he has also purchased your life, your eternal life. It's his, all of it belongs to him. Because he's the one that died and he's the one that rose from the dead. In other words, what Paul is saying, by bringing this into the discussion, what Paul is saying is this. If we rightly understand the meaning and the significance of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, then we will rightly understand that he has the authority to judge, and we do not. That's the the, the implications here of the theology. Jesus Christ died for you. Therefore, don't judge. Why? Why? How do we connect those dots? Well, that's what Paul is doing then in verses 10 through 12. He's connecting those dots and he makes this basic point to us. Prepare to give an account to the Lord. Verse 10. He says, but why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? That's the other side. Remember coming back in here, the sin of the strong, showing contempt. For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of... Edward. We shall all stand before the judgment seat of Michael. We shall all stand before the judgment seat of Nick and Steve. No. We stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And then he quotes, I love this, he quotes verse 11 from from prophet Isaiah. It is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us shall give account of himself to God, verse 12. Jesus Christ is our judge. These verses, this passage, as I've studied this and meditated on this passage, this passage makes a very strong case for the deity of Christ. Do you know that? If you were arguing with a Jehovah's Witness, this might be a good passage to take them to and and to surprise them. They're expecting you to go to John 1 or Colossians 1 and go, hey, let's go to Romans 14. Because here, Paul quotes the the prophet Isaiah in verse 11. Definitely from Isaiah 45, and maybe another part of it, verse from another passage in Isaiah. But in, in, in this verse, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. That's a quotation from Isaiah 45. And there in Isaiah 45, it is very clearly Yahweh, the one true God and only Savior who's in view. Yahweh is saying through the prophet Isaiah to the Israelites, I am the judge and you're going to answer to me. And here the Apostle Paul says, this is the judgment seat of Christ. He connects Jesus Christ here with Yahweh, the God of Israel in the Old Testament. One and the same. Jesus Christ is God. 
That's clear, and Paul is making that point here. There's a great theological truth that, that all, of the, all of Paul's applications here are, are theological. They're, they're coming from theology. And so we have to understand these theological truths. Jesus Christ is God, and therefore Jesus Christ has all of the authority to judge. He sits on the throne, and he has as absolute authority. No one can question it. No one can say, no, you're wrong. No, you don't have all the facts. No, that's a bad judgment. Absolutely not. Jesus Christ will judge and he will judge definitively and perfectly. That's what Paul is saying here. He has the divine prerogative to judge the living and the dead because Christ is God. Let's grasp that truth. Let's meditate on that truth and it will help us to realize that means we don't have the authority to judge our brother or sister. He is our judge. He is our master to whom we must give account and therefore we do not have any room to sit in judgment of one another. Do you have a conviction about a matter in which the Bible is not explicitly clear. I mentioned several of them already, but there are more. I thought about several more. Politics and church. Political positions. I know that um, back in 2010, back before we came to the church here, but I know in 2010 there was a a great deal of political discussion and differences of opinion uh, between people in this church on uh, on, on the, the, the governor's race and some of the things that were happening in the state. Uh, in 2010. How do, we, how do we deal with those issues when, when believers in the same church have differences of opinion about political things? How about flags in the sanctuary? Some, of, some people may not even see why that's an issue. And others are grieved by it. This is a weak and strong thing. That's the point. The strong, oh, what's the problem? I'll admit, this is, a, this is an issue on which I find myself in the weak category. Because I struggle with having patriotic expressions in church services. But this is an issue that, that, that Paul says could divide the church. How are we going to deal with this? There are certainly more uh, issues. Parenting styles. Parenting decisions. Do you send your kids to public school or private school or home school? It can be divisive issues in churches. Issues surrounding divorce and remarriage. Applications of biblical principles and how does that work in the life of the church. can be contentious issues. Christian support for Israel. Another issue that can be contentious. How about the priorities of the church, especially when it comes to social concern? Should we be, uh, uh, should we be trying to alleviate social problems in our community? Or not? What, what, what is the church's role in those things? Entertainment choices. I didn't put going to movies on the list. I probably should have. That would have been another one. You know, That used to be a big issue. I don't think it's a big issue anymore, at least not in, in our church. But Use of technology. I remember when these digital projectors first came out and there was, there was some significant disagreement among Christians over whether or not this was acceptable. Should, should we have one of these in church? Should we use it or not? Is it a good thing or a bad thing? And it's, how we rest, again, 
Is there a right and a wrong side of that issue? I'm not sure. It doesn't really matter. And that's not my focus today. The focus is how are we going to disagree? How are we going to deal with it when there's a disagreement about something? Yeah, but they're silly. That's not the point. Paul says you don't get to call them that. Paul says you've got to show respect. Paul says you can't judge them. So, again, dealing with these issues. Now, there's some other things, some theological issues that, that are disputable. The exact relationship between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. Otherwise couched in more familiar terms of Calvinism and Arminianism and all that stuff. Churches get split over that stuff. Now, I'm, please don't misunderstand. I'm not saying it's not important or it doesn't matter or the Bible doesn't even speak about it. What I'm saying is when Christians have disagreement about it, how we handle the disagreement is, is important. Maybe more important than the, than the disagreement itself. The specific timing of end time events. Is it pre-trib rapture? Is it mid-trib? Is it pre-wrath? Is it post-trib? Are we pre-millennial, amillennial, or post-millennial, or pan-millennial? People like to say it all pan out in the end. I don't know. But the point is, differences of opinion here. Um, again, it doesn't negate someone's Christian brotherhood just because we have a disagreement on something like that. The nature and role of spiritual gifts in the church. Listen, let me put a plug in. We're having a strange fire study tonight at Jim and Eileen's house. And we're going to be watching the next video on that. And I think it's a really important issue. And those of you who have been around here for a while and talked to me about it, you know how I feel about this issue. It's very important. But how we treat brothers and sisters in Christ with whom we disagree is really important. We don't want to fall prey to the sin of judgmentalism even while we try to call them back to what we believe is a right view of things. But we've got to be careful how we do it. Again, not saying that the Bible is silent, but there are sincere or apparently sincere Christians who differ in their understanding of the biblical evidence on these issues. What matters most is not whether you're right or can convince other people to take your position What matters is, one, whether you're fully convinced in your own mind, and two, then, whether you're giving honor to the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you strong? Do you exercise freedom in some area? You need to know that someday you're going to give an account to God for the sincerity of your belief and for the honor that you owe your weaker brothers and sisters in Christ. It's not your job to straighten them out. It's not your job to make sure they come to a full understanding, just like you have, of the Christian life. He doesn't answer to you, he answers to God, right? On the other side, if you're weak, and you feel you have to limit your, 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 yourself in some disputable area, know that you too will give an account to God for your decision on that issue, and the grace that you extend to your brothers and sisters who are strong in the faith. You don't have the right to sit in judgment. Now here's just one final thought as we close here. Does this mean that other Christians in the church, maybe even some in leadership in the church, will take positions that are different from yours? Yes. It's going to happen. It has happened. It's happening now. If you start talking to one another about these different kind of issues, you're going to find disagreements. Does that mean 
that you'll have to leave this church and go find another one that agrees with you. That's what some people do. We have a disagreement. And rather than accepting that this brother or sister is going to answer to God, well, I, I would simply say this. If you want to be obedient to Scripture, no, you can't leave the church and go find another one that fits you better when you have a disagreement over something. It's also foolish because you go to that church and they might agree with you on that issue, but then the next issue you're going to disagree about. And guess what? You'll have to find another church after that. And another one, and another one. And unfortunately, I know people like that who've gone from church to church to church to church and never fit in because they just can't get this issue figured out. You need to learn to trust Jesus. He will judge your fellow servants. He is capable of handling them, trust me. He's capable of showing them that they're wrong, if they are wrong, and leading them into the truth. And he is just as capable of correcting you in areas where you've gotten it wrong, no matter how hard you think you've gotten it right. We don't avoid the sin of judgmentalism by making everyone agree with us. We avoid it by trusting Jesus Christ to judge righteously, letting him be the master, and remembering that we're all his servants. And each one of us is going to give an account to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I realize how easy it is to sit in judgment of others. How easy it is to think that, that I've got it all figured out. That my position must be right because I have it and I've thought through it and I've come to this conclusion and therefore everyone else who disagrees with me has to be wrong. And I realize there's a great temptation there for all of us. Certainly, I see it in myself. To sit in judgment of others. Help us to realize that when we do that, what we are trying to do is we are trying to sit at the judgment seat of Christ but, but have us be in the judge's seat. We're trying to replace Christ as the Lord. Oh, I pray that you'd help us to see the foolishness of that. To see the destruction that it causes to ourselves, our own Christian walk, and our relationship with Christ, as well as within the church, to our own Christian brothers and sisters. Help us to show honor and love for one another. Help us to show grace to those with whom we disagree on disputed issues. Help us to dig even deeper into the Scripture, to be encouraged to study more, to examine issues more closely, and continue to, 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 to reevaluate our positions in light of your Word that we would not imagine that we've somehow arrived at the conclusions. And I pray, Lord, you'd help us as a church to demonstrate a spirit of grace with one another rather than the, the sin of judgmentalism. That people who come to visit here, people who come as our guests would see that, well, we don't always agree on everything, that there, are, that there is certainly freedom for disagreement and room for that. There's also a great love for one another, even when we disagree, especially when we disagree. And we go out of our way to honor and serve one another and show love. Oh, Lord, I pray that you'd help us to respond rightly in this area. In Jesus' name, amen.